Hi, I'm Rima, and you're listening to Think Like a Scientist. In this show, we break down barriers between scientific thinking and modern-day actions for the result of providing you real-life tools and experiences that you can use to bring positive impact. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Think Like a Scientist. If you're new here, welcome. My name is Rima. I currently study molecular genetics and I specialize in neuroscience with a minor in psychology. And today I wanted to talk specifically about the gut microbiome and how it influences your emotions and the effects and all these processes of, you know, how it affects the neuroscience and how your food influences your mood and uh, how this process is bi-directional. So I want to go into also all of these misconceptions that we see in the media about, you know, probiotics and um, these microorganisms and the food and the gut-brain access and how the brain is connected to the gut. And I want to also touch on many of uh, these studies that have been shown to have such significant findings and replicated studies. And I want to talk about their findings and explain to you exactly what it means. And essentially, the reason why I wanted to touch on this is because these fields, um, like you know, the connect, the gut-brain access and the connection with your gut microbiome and all of these things, um, have started to really uh, show such a plethora of studies and findings. And essentially, it's they all have one thing in common, which is that our genes. Are not really what we used to think. Our genes is really not this, you know, predetermined stone cold thing that um, is stuck forever. Uh, it's really not what genes we have, but what how they're expressed and uh, how our genes are expressed, which is essentially the study of epigenetics and you know how our environment and lifestyle, diet, sleep, and all of these things really influence and affect how your genes are expressed and um, it's starting you know there's a plethora of of significant findings and research on this i think in the next decade or or so is really gonna induce such a big change for preventative and precision medicine so first of all what is the gut microbiome first i wanted to define what the gut microbiome is because we see it on the media we see it everywhere but I really want to put in this definition and lay this foundation for this episode. And essentially, the gut microbiome is just the ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, and microbes that are present in our gut. And you've probably you're probably familiar with probiotics. You've probably seen it all over all over the media. People say to take probiotics, and that it's important for your immune system. And that's true. Probiotics are filled with bacteria and microbes that are healthy for our gut. And um, I want to put a disclaimer out there that microbes aren't, you know, good or bad. It's this balance of of these microorganisms that promote the, the health and well-being. But I'm going to go about um, go into that later in this episode. But first, I wanted to go into really how probiotics are consumed and how it how it can actually take effect on our gut microbiome because we see that you know you should take probiotics and there's also prebiotics and. Um, but we also need to ask, you know, do probiotics, like the oral consumption of probiotic and just popping an oral probiotic pill, does it actually influence our gut flora? And do they actually evolve and stay in our gut? Like, does it change the gut microbiome? Because 
we have these microorganisms and these ecosystems, but you know, how long do they colonize the gut and do they actually can can they survive transit through the upper gastrointestinal tract and actually evolve in the gut? These are just the questions that I'd like you as a listener to think critically on as we go through this episode because essentially bacteria they replicate fast and it's really the environment that they're in that promotes their replication. And I'm going to go into that later in this episode but but essentially it's how the you know intestinal walls of our gut actually serve as this you know environment for these microorganisms these microbes so we have to think about you know the root causes of how or you know how can we actually promote these quote quote unquote you know healthy bacteria so essentially my point here is that the environment in your gut really promotes the bacteria the mucosal lining of the gut and the intestinal walls of the gut they could, they could either be acidic or basic and they promote the bacteria so it's really about the environment and how to promote healthy gut flora and environment through the foods through you know it's shown that foods and fermented foods are the best is the best way to to promote healthy bacteria in your gut another thing i wanted to go into is what influences our gut microbiome because you know when we're first born that's when our microbiome is initially developed so the microbiome is developed via vertical transmission through the placenta, the amniotic fluid. And I bring this up because there are a lot of interesting studies on the effects of your initial gut microbiome when you are first born and the way you are born as well. So two animal studies have shown that fetuses exposed to prenatal stress in the form of maternal stress. So that means if the mother was chronically stressed, the fetus was shown to have decreased levels of bifidobacterium. And why is that important? Bifidobacterium is a probiotic that has actually gained a lot of media's attention because it plays an important role in digestion and fighting off harmful bacteria. And studies have concluded that the mode of delivery affects the initial microbiome and gut microbiota. So infants who were born naturally had higher amounts of bacteria in their gut compared to infants born through a cesarean section. And, you know, having more bacteria in the gut is better because of a diverse colony, a diverse gut flora. So there's obviously a lot of research about this, but I covered it just very briefly because I wanted you to understand the different ways our gut microbiome is affected and how dynamic it actually is to the outside environment. The point is that our body is really dynamic and speaking of dynamic you should check out my previous episode after this one on basically the brain's ability to change itself which is termed neuroplasticity and our whole body is dynamic we can have genes that encode for different diseases but essentially the environment the lifestyle diet sleep exercise all of these things can affect whether those genes are expressed and so i wanted to get to the point again which is that the microorganisms goal is to proliferate and they do this because of the environment that they're in also known as the mucosal lining the mucosal lining can either be acidic or basic and they can either strengthen our immune system and make us feel good because of the different types of bacteria that they promote or they can make us feel ill and i bring this up because they do impact neurotransmitters Foods and fermented foods are the best source of probiotics, though some oral supplements are taken. But remember that, you know, there is this 
aspect of it of whether they actually do evolve in the gut and if you do maintain a good diet and lifestyle and all of these things then eventually you will promote these uh, the healthy bacteria and it's shown that foods and fermented foods are the best source of probiotics but i also want to bring it up because more is not better so not having these probiotics can be bad and as well as too much of these probiotics can also be bad a study showed that too much of these probiotics can actually cause brain fog. So a study was done of those who were uh, orally taking probiotics and too much can actually cause brain fog. So um, this is something that really it's, you know, a double-edged sword and it's something that you have to look into. Another thing was artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners um, can actually disrupt the gut microbiome. There's a lot of study on this. Some have, you know, shown no significant finding while Others have actually shown to disrupt the gut microbiome, and more specifically, there was a study that sh- that showed that saccharin, which is an artificial sweetener, was shown to disrupt the gut microbiome and make the mucosal lining more favorable for bacteria that aren't good for the organism. So the gut microbiome can undergo shifts, and these shifts can either be good or bad. And I bring this study up because there are many artificial sweeteners that are present in many of these processed foods, mainly sucralose and aspartame. And these are probably present in foods that probably you'll probably see as no sugar added. So for example, Diet Coke, um, zero calorie as has aspartame. Even no sugar added gum has aspartame. So it's something that you could probably look into the literature on the effects of these two artificial sweeteners on the gut microbiome because these two artificial sweeteners are the one of the most abundant in processed foods. So artificial sweeteners, more specifically saccharin in this study, was shown to disrupt the gut microbiome and make the mucosal lining more favorable for bacteria that aren't good for the organism. So the gut microbiome can undergo shifts and these shifts can either be good or bad. So that's what that's the point that I was saying which was that our body is dynamic and so we also know that a shift to a whole foods plant-based diet does incredible effects on the gut microbiome because of the fiber present and we're going to get into how this affects and how the food can can influence your mood just a little bit later in this episode but I want to put this foundation and also, overall, processed foods actually, regardless of the of their source, whether it's a non-animal based or animal based, if it's you know processed foods, they can lead to overconsumption and weight gain. And this shouldn't be surprising because our gut actually has amino sensors and sugar sensors, so our body tells us uh, when we're f- so our body can sense when we're full, but it senses and it tells us when we're full if it has adequate amounts of nutrients and amino acids. So you could imagine consumption of processed foods that don't have any of these things will actually lead to overconsumption, no matter how much you've consumed, because you're not actually giving your body what it needs. Now, I also want to go how the brain is connected to the gut, because uh, many studies have shown that psychological-based approaches have led to greater improvement in digestive symptoms compared with just conventional medical treatment. Um, This actually just goes to show that there is an influence, which is bi-directional, and I want to influence and emphasize that. So our mind influences our digestive symptoms, such as when you're experiencing anxiety or stress, you may have digestive problems. But it can also go the other way. It is essentially bi-directional. 
So how is the brain connected to the gut? So you've probably heard that 90% of serotonin is present in the gut. It's not that serotonin itself is present in the gut, but it's that it is 90% of serotonin is synthesized in the gut. And by that I mean what you eat influences the the synthesis of this, you know, 90% of serotonin that that we talk about. So serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine. And I want to put that there because I want to go into a study that actually talks about this and how certain foods and amino acids are actually part of the biosynthesis of 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin. Over 90% of serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine, is present in something that we call enterochromaffin cells of the gut. And it is synthesized by the rate-limiting enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase. And tryptophan, you've probably heard of essential amino acids. Tryptophan is one of the essential amino acids that we need to take in from our food. And it is, uh, the f- it's present in food as the form L-tryptophan. So L-tryptophan is an amino acid that is consumed from foods and it is the precursor to serotonin. And when I say precursor, I mean that L-tryptophan is what is needed to synthesize serotonin, to produce serotonin. And this is done because L-tryptophan gets converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan by the rate-limiting enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase. And 5-hydroxytryptophan gets converted to 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is what we talked about, which is serotonin. And I know that probably sounded like a mouthful and some jumble words, but the point is that L-tryptophan is what is needed to convert to synthesize serotonin in the gut. And what affects your mood is actually the neurochemicals in your brain. What you eat just provides the means for the neurochemicals to be expressed. So tryptophan, you can think of it as, you know, it produces serotonin. Serotonin is uh, regulates anxiety, um, helps you feel relaxed. It's um, important for sleep as well because <laughs> serotonin itself is the precursor to melatonin which is the hormone and melatonin is a hormone it's important for the circadian rhythm i'm sh- i'm sure many of you have heard of it the biosynthesis that i just explained to you about how l-tryptophan is converted into serotonin serotonin is what is needed to can be converted into melatonin so some people say to you know eat foods that are high in tryptophan in the evening so that it can produce serotonin and serotonin can produce melatonin. Another amino acid or essential amino acid is L-tyrosine. L-tyrosine is the precursor to dopamine. So some people say to eat foods that are high in L-tyrosine in the morning and evening, in morning and afternoon so that you can actually get dopamine. And uh, the way it's actually produced, first L-tyrosine is converted to L-dopa because we actually have something that's called the blood-brain barrier and or the BBB. The blood-brain barrier is basically a barrier that protects the brain and spinal cord and essentially you can think of it as a wall but what it really is is just these blood vessels are these endothelial cells in the blood that are composed of tight junctions so they don't allow any molecules to pass through and likewise for the brain no neurotransmitters can just spread throughout the the bloodstream and that would be quite that's quite helpful because imagine if any neurotransmitters were to just pass through the bloodstream this would confuse the whole system it really just serves as a barrier and the only way for any molecule to pass through the blood-brain barrier is through um, a transporter so 
what happens is L-tyrosine gets converted to L-dopa, and L-dopa is the form that can pass through the blood-brain barrier. And essentially, L-dopa gets converted to dopamine in the brain. And this reminded me of a fun fact that for Parkinson's disease, and you can imagine this with drugs as well, because in order for drugs to be effective, they actually have to cross the blood-brain barrier. So with Parkinson's disease, you know, the injection of dopamine is highly ineffective. You know, you don't actually inject dopamine for patients with Parkinson's disease. You actually um, inject L-dopa because L-dopa is what can cross the blood-brain barrier to get converted to to dopamine. And dopamine is put it simply, it's it's the it's the neurotransmitter of motivation, addiction, and motor control. So there was actually this study, this Parkinson's study, that showed that Parkinson's patients that were injected with L-dopa actually had increased addictive behaviors because dopamine does play a role in addiction. Another thing I wanted to talk about is is the role of omega three and omega six because there's there are a lot of interesting studies and I want and I want to touch on them. But before I go into it. I want to say that I'm not trying to bash the use of antidepressants. I really just want to talk about the studies and shed light on all of these, all the ways that our, our body really is the gut uh, is connected to our brain. So there's a study that showed that the omega-3 to 6 ratio has a profound effect on depression. So they took people with clinical depression and they gave them 1000 milligrams of EPA. And EPA is just one of the elements of omega-3 fatty acids. The other one is DHA. So they gave them 1,000 milligrams of EPA, and they compared it to 20 milligrams of fluoxetine. And fluoxetine is an antidepressant. It increases serotonin in the body, so it's an SSRI. And you may have heard it as Prozac. So they compared these two, and they found that 1,000 milligrams of EPA, or omega-3 fatty acids, was equally effective to 20 milligrams of fluoxetine, and they had synergistic effects on depression. So they found that basically omega-3 fatty acids can be equally effective to fluoxetine at that level. So 1,000 milligrams of EPA and 20 milligrams of fluoxetine were equally effective in this study. Well, you may be wondering now the effects of a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio on depression. Another study compared the effects of a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio and conversely a high omega-3 to omega-6 ratio and its effects with low doses of antidepressants. And they found that a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio increased pro-inflammatory cytokines such as IL-6 and was not responsive to antidepressants at a low dose whereas a high omega-3 to omega-6 ratio decreased pro-inflammatory cytokines and allowed antidepressants to have an effect even at a low dose. So now I'm going to go into the gut-brain axis. The gut-brain axis is connected via the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the 10th cranial, cranial nerve and it is the main component of the parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is one of the three components of the peripheral nervous system. Now, I know that was just a mouthful. I'm going to zoom out and give you this, uh, give you a foundation of what all this means and what really the, the nervous system is composed of. So the nervous system is composed of two main parts, the central nervous system, which, uh, you can, which is the CNS, the brain and spinal cord. So the central nervous system is composed of the brain and spinal cord. 
And the peripheral nervous system, the PNS, is composed of everything but the brain and spinal cord. So this includes cranial nerves, uh, such as the vagus nerve, and spinal spinal nerves, and etc. The peripheral nervous system connects the central nervous system, so the brain and spinal cord, um, to other organs in the body, so that they can actually have this bidirectional effect that I was talking about in the beginning of the episode. One component of the peripheral nervous system is the autonomic nervous system. And you've probably heard of this before. As the name suggests, the autonomic nervous system actually controls involuntary actions, such as digestion, your heart beating, or blood pressure. So you don't voluntarily control these things. This is the autonomic nervous system. If you zoom in even more, the autonomic nervous system is composed of three parts. The parasympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and the enteric nervous system. To put it simply, you may have heard that the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for the flight or fight response and the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for rest and digestion and the enteric nervous system the one that we will be referring to today is the one that lies in the intestinal walls of the gut stomach esophagus pancreas gallbladder and when i was referring to the mucosal lining I was referring to the enteric nervous system. It is composed of nerve cells that lie in many of the organs that are responsible for digestion. The enteric nervous system communicates to the central nervous system, so the brain and spinal cord, via the parasympathetic nervous system, so the nerves that are within the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system can stimulate the enteric nerves, so the enteric nerves that are within the intestinal walls and these organs that are responsible for digestion to enhance enteric function. So this is where it starts to make sense, where in the beginning of the episode I talked about serotonin 5-hydroxytryptamine. So essentially uh, serotonin is synthesized in what we call enterochromaffin cells of the gut, and it is synthesized by the rate-limiting enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase. So That's what we talked about in the beginning, where L-tryptophan, through consumption of food, can get converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, and then converted to 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin, or the active form of serotonin. And there are different enzymes that are part of the synthesis of serotonin in the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. In the peripheral nervous system, which also encompasses the, par- the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digestion, and the enteric nervous system includes tryptophan hydroxylase 1, the rate-limiting enzyme that is part of the biosynthesis of serotonin in the peripheral nervous system. Tryptophan hydroxylase 2 is part of the synthesis of serotonin in the central nervous system. So there was this study that showed that gut microbes promote colonic ser- serotonin production through an effect of short-chain fatty acids on enterochromaffin cells. Colonic tryptophan hydroxylase 1 protein and tissue serotonin concentration increased with colonization by the gut microbiota. So an in vitro human model of enterochromaffin cells, short-chain fatty acids, um, essentially butyrate and acetate, which are produced in abundance by distal gut microbes in viva, significantly affected tryptophan hydroxylase 1 expression in a concentration-dependent manner. The microbiota-induced 5-hydroxytryptamine production in the colon is caused by luminal short-chain fatty acids stimulating enterochromaffin cells to increase transcription of tryptophan hydroxylase 1 mRNA. That was a mouthful, but let's go into it. 
Short-chain fatty acids are basically generated by gut microbes, and these gut microbes that are capable of fermenting dietary saccharides. So you can think of fiber. Short-chain fatty acids are produced from dietary fiber, from indigestible polysaccharides. Indigestible polysaccharides. So polysaccharides, they're chains of sugars. So poly meaning many, saccharides meaning sugar, polysaccharides. And short-chain fatty acids play an important role in the body and are involved with maintaining health and have been studied in relation to digestive cancer, such as colorectal cancer or stomach cancer. It is known that a dysfunction of the serotonergic systems and dysbiosis of the gut microbiota can cause irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, depression, and other systemic disorders. And the serotonergic system is is a transmitter system in the brain, and the key neurotransmitter in the system is serotonin. And you can imagine that a dysfunction of the serotonergic system and dysbiosis of the gut microbiota, so an imbalance of the gut microbiota, are known to cause irritable bowel syndrome, known as IBS, alongside with depression and other systemic disorders. So what this study found was that short-chain fatty acids stimulate enterochromaffin cells to increase transcription of tryptophan hydroxylase 1 mRNA. 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin, and the production of serotonin in the colon is caused by luminal short-chain fatty acids. And depending on your science background, I know some listeners have a background in science, but if you don't recall your high school biology, which is the or the central dogma of molecular biology, where DNA transcribes into RNA, which translates into protein. Short-chain fatty acids include butyrate and acetate, which are found abundantly in fruits, vegetables, legumes, and nuts. And these short-chain fatty acids, these luminal short-chain fatty acids, uh, stimulate enterochromaffin cells to increase transcription of tryptophan hydroxylase 1 mRNA, which in turn will increase colonic secretion of 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin. So we've talked a lot in this episode about how what you consume and how your gut microbiome can affect these neurotransmitters and in turn affect your mood and emotions. And we started with talking about how your gut microbiome is initially developed when you are first born and how dynamic our body is. And if you really enjoyed this episode, you can check out the previous episode where I talked about the brain's ability to change itself. And this is termed neuroplasticity. So let me know if you enjoyed this episode as well because this is something I'm quite interested in and something that's really going to come up in the next and become a lot more prominent and affect the healthcare field because right now the study of epigenetics and its applications in things like precision medicine because you know we've seen diseases like cancers and even though two people may have the same type of cancer the way that they are expressed is differently so they have vastly different tumor compositions so the treatment of these diseases is going to change in the next decade or so and we're starting to see what is called precision medicine where the treatment and prevention of these diseases are going to be more specific 
to the individual. We're no longer going to have a treatment or cure for all where we treat each person via their symptoms. We're going to start to look more on the root causes of these diseases and what causes these gene encoding diseases to be expressed. In precision medicine, we're going to look at the holistic view of each individual person. It's no longer going to be one drug fits all model. We're going to look at each individual person and how their lifestyle affects the likelihood of their genes or these gene encoding diseases to be expressed. And with that, we're going to tweak lifestyle factors such as sleep, stress, diet, and all of these factors to prevent individuals who may have a high susceptibility or higher likelihood to get these diseases later on in life. There are also other treatments right now that are um, more specific to individual mutations or individuals' genetic mutations like CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which you may have heard in the media. And this is something that I hope to speak about in the next few episodes, so stay tuned for that because it, it's quite interesting now how these technologies enable us to actually not only treat but prevent these diseases before they are expressed. And obviously we still have yet to implement these in human clinical trials, but you know there's obviously also a lot of hesitancy with the general public on things like this and naming these things genetic engineering may, you know, elicit the the idea that we're going to mess with the whole genome by by deleting or repairing a mutated gene. But for diseases like sickle cell disease, it was actually shown to be fully cured. Sickle cell disease is a blood disorder and it's called sickle because it inherits a sickle shape and the hemoglobin is damaged and can't carry oxygen to the tissues. So these blood cells are defective compared to normal red blood cells. And this is caused only by one single nucleotide mutation. So by deleting that and repairing that mutation, we'll, we're able to fully cure that disease. And CRISPR-Cas9 technology is able to work for, right now, it's shown to be able to work for diseases that have single nucleotide mutations like sickle cell disease and muscular dystrophy. So this is not what we talked about today in this episode, but I essentially I wanted to put it out there because this is part of preventative and precision medicine. Thank you for listening to this episode. Let me know if you enjoyed it as we've talked about the field of precision medicine spans greatly into different subsects. I hope to bring it up in the next few episodes, so stay tuned. Check out my previous episodes in the meantime, and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.